we should be using gas really now as a second source, a secondary source, and only when we absolutely have to, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Zoisa Northbond, the CEO of Octopus Energy Generation and Octopus Energy for Business. Zoisa took an unconventional career route to CEO, starting out with a degree in ancient history, a master's in Roman archaeology, followed by a stint in PR, before rising to UK Managing Director of Veneco, Europe's first sustainability utility. In 2018, she moved to Octopus Energy as CEO of the Renewable Generation and Business Arms of Octopus Energy, helping to bring innovative green solutions to customers by engaging with communities and harnessing smart technology. With the rise of energy prices, we really wanted to get an insider perspective for you and hear firsthand about the movement towards greener and more sustainable energy. That's why I am so delighted to welcome Zoisa to the show. Thank you for joining us on 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? I'm very well and delighted to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, well, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And we, we thought, like we always do, we'd like to warm you up a little bit with some quick fire questions. So if you don't mind, please finish these following sentences after me. First up, I grew up wanting to be. Mm, that's an interesting one. I think when I grew up, I didn't actually have any preconception of what I wanted to be. I think I just wanted to be happy and healthy. And I think it's also an interesting one because I look at a quote I love from Oscar Wilde, who used to describe that if you grow up wanting to be something, you inevitably become it. But actually, what that takes you away from is focusing on the fact that you can be anything at all. And I think that's what I wanted to be, which was happy, healthy and anywhere that things led me. <laughs> I love that. What a fantastic quote and a great way to look at things. We've had all sorts of answers to that question, but nobody's ever said that before. So thank you. A misconception people have about me is? I would say um, a misconception is given my career history and where I've ended up in life, that uh, people see me as being an extremely strong individual. And while that's true, I would say mentally I'm extremely strong. Physically, I'm not. And um, I've grown up um, at times where I've had a disability. So what I've also found and the way that that drives me is that I kind of jump out of bed in the mornings. And when I've got the energy and I'm not tired, I make sure that I fix on the big things and I don't stress about the little things. And I think that's in many ways, while it's a difficult condition to have lived with, I also see it as a strength, but in a different way, I suppose. Yeah, your own superpower. I think to live with a disability is even more impressive, especially given all you've achieved. And I think that's in itself super inspiring for anybody that might be listening to this that has a disability. The last time I cried was when? Ooh, that's an interesting one. It would have been, I'm reading a book actually at the moment about a childhood a heroine of mine who is Anne Frank. And there's not a lot of work, actually, new work that's published about her, but there is a book called Beyond the Annex which was published about a month ago. And um, it's just looking at a lot more source material. And there are several points where I am finding myself crying at just the unjustness of life. And I think the opportunity she missed, and even right down to the day she died, just missing out on her council liberation by months. And it just reminds me of how much unfairness there is in the world and there still remains. 
Yeah, it's it's very true. I must read that. Um, Like yourself, a a kind of big fan of history. And we're recording this a few weeks after the terrible earthquake in in Turkey and Syria. And, uh, you know, I was having this exact conversation with my wife the other day about how we have this house in Sussex, uh, you know, healthy, happy family and are so, so lucky. It's good to reflect on how lucky we are. So that's a really good one. If there was one thing that I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... It would probably be that the term was more widely understood because I think entrepreneurship very often is a bit of a catch-all. And why I think that can sometimes be unhelpful is when you look at the talent that we need to attract for entrepreneurship and to work in startups like Octopus Energy. I think very often, you know, graduates coming out of university are among the best talent that we can tap that. But it may very often be parents or people around them that influence them that don't understand entrepreneurship. And they tend to push them down more traditional routes like consultancy or analysis. And I was reading, it was a post I was reading on on, uh, LinkedIn the other day that was talking about six out of 10 graduates going into those consulting and analytical style of jobs. And actually just think of the impact that we could have in the world if they joined startup style ventures uh, that were really purpose led. And actually, we'd have a lot more people doing and a lot less people probably commentating. So that really sticks with me. And I think if we could get it more understood and skill sets behind it, it could be really different. I love that answer. I really do. We, we hosted a live recording of this podcast at the Sifted Summit last year. And it was all about not just purpose over profit, but how purpose and profit can combine. And one of the, the themes of that conversation was just how increasingly we're seeing talent want to move earlier in their career into purpose-led organizations. So I think that shift is happening, but it needs to happen even more. And one of the things that we talked about in that discussion was how, wouldn't it be amazing if all the entrepreneurial people out there that want to start businesses, don't just focus on the kind of how to make a quick buck, but actually channel that entrepreneurial energy into solving the real world problems that need fixing and like making our you know planet a better place to live tackling the climate crisis so um yeah i think that's going to happen more and more but i think there's a whole educational piece about you know what entrepreneurship really involves and the opportunities there that i think i hope we can get that across to graduates and apprentices and and all the people out there And, and that's what we're trying to do in part a little bit with this podcast final question my biggest failure to date is I'm one of these these people that doesn't tend to really see failure. I see learning experiences. So I wouldn't look back on anything and say I'd failed necessarily. Saying that, I failed my driving test and I failed it a couple of times. And I think it was the first time that in my life I'd ever failed at a test. And when I look back on that, I mean, actually, it made me a better driver as as a result. So I don't think that was a bad thing. I've never had a speeding ticket or crashed my car or hurt anybody else, which is um, fundamentally really important. So I don't really see failures. I just see opportunity to improve. Love that. Yeah. And and as somebody that also failed their driving test first time, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much, Louisa. You already get a sort of insight into who you are and a bit about, you know, earlier life. And I guess I wanted to start there because I mentioned in the intro that you've had a slightly alternative route to becoming a CEO. So I'd love to get a bit of an insight into how you went from PR into the energy sector originally. And what was it about that industry that, that really sort of interested you? 
It's an interesting question. I think looking at training and background and right from university, one of the things that I absolutely loved about learning was storytelling. So history and then archaeology, you're not just finding a random artifact, everything has a story behind it. And I wanted to really discover what that was. Going into PR and communications, it's all about that. It's about good storytelling. It's about understanding audiences and understanding the the products that you might be selling on behalf of clients and what's really going to resonate about those products clients with those audiences. And I came across energy in that context. Um, I actually had a client that was in the energy sector at that that time. And I remember sitting back and reading about energy. And it was um, a world, I want to say it was 15 years ago now, it makes me feel very old, but over 15 years ago, when I first got to grips with, with energy. And it was a world that was changing drastically because we could see that we had to move to better ways to cleaner sources that were more sustainable. And it was about helping people understand why that was so important and the story behind that. There was also um, looking at the energy um, sector more widely. There was a lot of friction. There was um, very poor customer service. Um, there was, you know, very often can, customers didn't really feel that they understood what energy was and how this bill that is a very important bill that goes outside of our bank accounts every month to energy companies, really what made that up or why, why things work that way. And I think looking at all of those things, I really felt that it was a sector I wanted to join because I could make a real difference with that storytelling aspect and that ability to understand messaging and understand how people would think and feel about things and understand what people would need to understand, you know, need to be receiving in terms of information that really attracted me to it. And I sit back and I look at that first company, which was all about wind and solar farms and making sure that we were doing better things for the environment. And I think it was setting the stage for Octopus, a company like Octopus, to come into this setting that really put customers at the heart of what it was doing um, and use this digital approach to really drive down the cost of the way the system operated so that customers can receive cheaper energy as a result, but also understand a lot more about why certain things are as they are, why the system acts as it does, and the things that are an injustice in the world and why they don't have to operate like that into the future. So all of those things, I think, uh, were why I was really attracted to energy at that point in my career. Amazing. And and I guess you've been at Octopus now for six years. How did that role come about? And what was it? I mean, I guess we've already given us a glimpse as to what was so attractive about Octopus, but it'd be good to take yourself back to, to six years ago. What was running through your mind about why Octopus was a, a great place to be at that point in time? It was very interesting. So the role I actually had um, for an ACO, it was a great role in absolutely every single way. And I was doing lots of work with very big corporate customers, people like Mars and Unilever, to make them 100% sustainable in the way that they were using energy in the UK. So it was basically providing energy from the wind and solar farms that we were building for those organisations. And as part of exploring a new conversation, I started speaking to the Emirates Stadium, so Arsenal Football Club, and having some great conversations with them at that point because we were doing great work with big corporates. And um, I thought, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do really well here. Anyway, I was talking to them one day and they said, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to give this contract to Octopus Energy. And have you ever heard of them? I said, no, I've never heard of them. As far as I was concerned, they supplied 10,000 households. I've never heard of this person. They said, Greg Jackson, he's a wonderful person. And if you, you know, you should find out a bit more about him. And I thought I was a bit frustrated. And I thought, well, um, okay, I'll drop him a note because um, I'm interested to know kind of what happened here, if um, short of anything else. And I, you know, I love talking to people more widely across the industry and kind of learning about new influences. 
And I got in touch with Greg and he got straight back and he said, yeah, I'd love to have a chat with you. So I came in and he and I talked um, we, and looked at the, the, the business and the organization. I went out to lunch with him and we talked about this, the state of the energy market and the direction of which it needed to travel and really quickly. And the story he could tell about technology, and it was something that I could really see, but I didn't know how to deliver that part. But Greg was a tech entrepreneur. And I thought, gosh, he is the thing that this industry is really missing. So I kind of thought, well, if I can't beat them, I may as well join them. So um, by the end of that lunch, I was kind of saying to Greg, I'd love to work here. He was saying, I'd love you to work here too. So uh, it went from there. And uh, despite the fact that Octopus was a much smaller business at that point than the one I came from, it's not a decision I have once ever regretted. And uh, I feel extremely fortunate to still, six years on, be enjoying it as much as I did on day one. Wow, amazing. What a great story. And I, I've said it on here many times before, fortune favours the brave. And you clearly got in at a great time and have had an amazing, amazingly successful ride there. So and I guess looking at your experience at Octopus, and I guess particularly your current roles, you're actually in a dual CEO role uh, for over two years now. So how have you managed to juggle two different businesses? And, and what have been some of the, the hardest parts of that and the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in that time? Yeah, so the way I juggled it is nothing short of the most amazing people and the most amazing team I have around me. And this team, I remember joining on day one, and I used to think I was quite, um, I think everybody likes to think this in their world, that they're special. You know, you, you come in and you think you've got something very different. And not to say that I haven't, I won't be kind of self-depreciating. But these guys scared the life out of me because they were younger than me, had more energy than me. They were brighter than me. The fact that I was just more skilled in terms of knowledge and time and age didn't really seem to matter in this world. So it was about bringing to the table every single day fresh ideas that were going to feel like they not only stood up to muster against this amazing generation of people, but also felt like it was going to really drive forward um, what we do. And it, it has. And they're the same team that I had on day one that I have actually now around me. And the team has grown massively, but I still have all the same people that I had on day one. And very much that's because uh, we've moved with the direction of the business. And uh, that's, that's the reason why I can run two businesses in tandem like that. I would say the challenges in that time, uh, which I think was the second part of your question, it probably comes for when you begin to start to integrate teams together. So uh, one of our businesses in generation, we've grown very rapidly from bringing in people with very different skill sets, very different perspectives, and bringing them almost into a startup culture from what was a very traditional set path, which was, well, financial services and fund management, uh, which is, is very, very different. So bringing that into startup culture, I think it's been, it's certainly tested me, but it's been very successful because in a short 18 months, that team has not only doubled the projects that it has under management, but I think is happier than ever because of the empowering environment that a startup culture like this, that we continue to perpetuate to this day, even though we're sort of seven years old, can give to anybody if they land in the middle of it. That's fantastic to hear. That's really great. And I think it's a real testament to your leadership as well, that you've been able to keep your team the same over that period of time. That's a very rare thing in the startup world and uh, great to hear. 
we get a lot of people listening to this podcast that are kind of aspiring founders, aspiring CEOs. So I wondered if you could share some advice with them about what it takes to be a CEO and, and would there be anything that you would do differently if you were to kind of start your CEO experience again? Both extremely interesting questions. I think the biggest piece of advice is that if you want to be a brilliant CEO that's going to scale and grow and reach your potential, you can't be frightened to be outside of your comfort zone. So I always have a motto in life that if I'm doing exactly the same things this year in exactly the same ways that I did last year, then I'm failing. I'm failing myself. I'm failing the team around me. And I'm not taking my business in the direction fast enough that it needs to go. And I think this kind of comes to why uh, we do retain people in the team and across Octopus. And it's because there is growth. There is growing towards this bigger goal of what we're trying to achieve as an organization. And actually, if I am still doing the same things that I've always done, then we're not going to move along that trajectory fast enough. So it's that ability to be comfortable with being outside your comfort zone. There is no comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and are there particular skills that you think aspiring CEOs should be, be working on and honing, particularly in, in 2023? I think probably the answer to this might have, been, might have been different 10, 15 years ago. What would you say are really important? Yeah, I would say endless positivity. And I think it's about spotting the opportunity. So in a world where I think we're being told things are extremely difficult, which of course they are, it's about actually flipping it on its head because wherever there is difficulty and there's challenge, there is always opportunity to do something differently. So I would say it's that tenacity, resilience to see those things and to spot those opportunities to make changes for the better in whatever you do, wherever you're working across the model. That would be a really top rating skill for a CEO um, in this particular climate. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. We've talked about being a CEO and you've been at Octopus through this incredible period of growth. And I guess in that time, you've seen massive amount of change and innovation in the sector. And I know you and your team have been really at the forefront of that. You launched the UK's first consolidated network of charge point providers and, and many other things. So of all of those highlights, what has been your kind of standout moment over the last six years and why? I would say it was possibly um, the first thing I ever really came in to achieve at Octopus. And the first brief I had was to set up Octopus Energy for Business, so supplying businesses with green electricity. And it was all about, at that stage, helping businesses on a journey as to why green energy was important and why it was much better to use clean energy versus taking brown electrons off of the grid and continuing to do the same things that they'd always done. 
And we launched um, a tariff called um, Leicester Business Power at this time. And I had no idea if it would be successful or not, to be perfectly honest. And it was the very first thing I'd ever done at Octopus. So it's the first thing that Greg, the group CEO, was going to see me do within my business line. Uh, so it felt like a big risk. And it was about taking uh, the power from a solar farm for businesses in Leicester. So it was located the solar farm near Leicester and it was supplying the energy um, as directly as we could to businesses that wanted to sign up to a solar farm and be supplied by renewable energy. And I wanted to do all sorts of other things that were going to score with businesses and be really important to businesses. So like being able to support the local community in what that, you know, the choice that they were making to buy locally. So it was looking at the way the tariff was structured. And we do a lot with referral fees here where you can refer friends or refer businesses. So saying to these businesses, rather than take the money personally, would you donate that to a pot that can go to the local community to help support keeping people warm? That was one of the aspects of it. It was also looking at things like the branding and working with schools to design the local branding in a competition and then um, being able to choose the uh, visual identity for this tariff. So it really felt like it was designed and for the businesses of Leicester. So all of that kind of taken together, as I said, no idea if it would be successful or not. And I, we went to go and launch it and we had a big launch partner. He was the Richard III Visitors Centre. So a very big kind of business in Leicester at that time, because it was one of the only kings, I think, that's ever been discovered outside, ever buried outside of Westminster Abbey. It was buried under a car park in Leicester. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> had been discovered and that uh, burial ground was, was had been sacred and there was a museum set up around it and they were the first people to sign up and say Do you know what because of the storytelling aspect of what you're doing we realize how important that is because storytelling is so important without the story behind Richard III or we have as a pile of bones that nobody wants to come and visit and they really connected with us on that tariff and they said look we will launch this with you so we launched it and I'm delighted to say that something like 500 businesses in the first three months of us running that particular tariff signed up and took the energy from that solar farm. And it was probably very pioneering at the time because it formed the backbone for what um, a lot of the things that I was to do subsequently working within the generation business in building generation for businesses. But um, I'm always very thankful looking back that Leicester, we were pretty much unknown at that stage as Octopus Energy, but they really took it to their hearts to sign up to that tariff, support their local solar farm, but also support their community too. So I think I would say that's probably one of my proudest moments here. That's fantastic. And I love the focus on engaging in local communities and seeing the impact that can have both ways. And that's fantastic to hear. I guess looking broad at the UK, we've come quite a long way, I think it's safe to say, when it comes to finding more sustainable energy sources and reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And I, I loved learning about uh, Octopus Energy's fan club, which uh, I'd love you to share a bit more about that to anyone that hasn't heard of it and how it's helping communities to reduce their energy prices. Sure. So at the moment, as we stand in Britain, it's very difficult to build onshore wind. So not all renewables um, can be built and delivered here. And one of those, and I think the only one, actually the outlier, is onshore wind. But it can provide such an important part of our energy mix for households because it's one of the technologies that produces the cheapest electricity that consumers can use. So we were wanting to really test a couple of things. And one was, why was it not in the energy mix? And the other was, would customers, do customers not like it? And would they not use it if it even meant that 
it was delivering cheaper energy at the end of it. So we created um, a proposition which became known as the fan club, where quite literally when the wind blows, customers can receive up to 50% off of their energy bill. So they look out the window. If the turbine blades are turning, just for being local and being close by and the fact that they can see the wind turbines turning, they would get 20% off their energy bills. But when the wind speeds really pick up and they do their energy intensive chores like put on washing machines, et cetera, they could get as much as 50% off the price of electricity. And again, just delighted with the reaction. And I think human nature surprises me so much each and every time um, you do an experiment like that, because not only was the tariff completely sold out uh, when we launched them, and I think we've got about enough um, capacity to supply 5,000 homes that way. But we started taking, as of last year, requests from communities all over England and Wales and Scotland, wanting us to come and build wind turbines in their back gardens, if it meant that they would get cheaper energy as a result. And to date, we've got 16,500 communities that have been in touch asking us for that, which is absolutely extraordinary. Wow, I love that. Absolutely love that. It's so great to hear. It's such an innovative uh, approach. And, and I think we've seen in our role working with lots of high growth startups and scale ups that building and nurturing communities is hugely valuable. It's also become one of those things that everybody's trying to do and not always everybody does it in the right way, I think. Uh, so uh, given it's been such a big part of your success and what advice do you have for any business leaders that are listening to this who are looking to kind of build and engage in communities particularly local ones to do it in the right way yeah and I, I think it's a super interesting question because I think communities it's a lot like people not every community is the same and you can't do things in exactly the same ways for every community but it's about spotting the things that binds them or they have in common so not every community is going to want a wind farm and I'm not going to expect that they will but what I want to be able to do is be able to listen to the communities that do and provide the right models. And the model might look slightly different for each place because some people might want to receive discounts on energy bills. Some people might want funds that go into a pot to support the local community. And I think it's about being adaptable and remembering that you can't always do things the same way each time. Great advice. Thank you, Teresa. And in terms of other initiatives that you're seeing to move towards more sustainable energy sources, we always talked about the fan club, but are there any other things that you're particularly excited about at the moment that we should be kind of telling our listeners and uh, getting them excited about their kind of innovation within the industry? Absolutely. So as well as building more generation for the UK, which obviously can provide a lot of energy security, which is really important, I think one of the most exciting developments that we're seeing is the ability for customers to be able to participate in helping to encourage more renewables to be built. And by what I mean when I say that is these new tariffs that are becoming available where customers can use energy at times where there might be lots and lots of green energy um, flowing through the grid, which means that they get cheaper energy pricing. And actually at times where there isn't much energy on the grid, they may be sent messages to say, energy might be more expensive now. And I think those styles of tariffs are so important because it shows you that consumers can drive this change as well. It's not just that we need baseload, which tends to be sort of coal-fired power stations, so something that sits in a straight line that can be used all the time. What renewables do is add these zigzags onto the system. And I love the fact that customers can deal with zigzags 
And actually, we have lots of tariffs available on the market for customers that kind of show that this is possible. But I think uh, with the advent of things like electric vehicles, which will have storage capacity into the future, it's an even greater way that customers can deal with those zigzags. So they can use energy when there's lots of it available, but then store it in their batteries for when it's not and use it, um, obviously, within their homes. So I think that's super exciting, which is not just innovation at the generator's end, but is actually with the customer as well and is is really um, allowing us to put that ability to drive the renewable evolution in customers' hands too. Yeah, and the zigzag will be very familiar for anyone that works in the startup world, how important it is to deal with ambiguity and have that kind of slightly more, you know, open mind when it comes to thinking about things. So yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome to hear. It would be really remiss of us not to touch upon the rising energy prices and the cost of living crisis that we are currently facing. We thought it was a really important topic to talk about on this, this series of the podcast because it's impacting everybody. So I would love to hear your perspective on, on all of this and, and what your experience of the energy crisis has been from the other side of the fence. So we'd love your take on it. Yeah, I mean, it's a super difficult um, situation for customers. It really is. We speak to 30,000 customers a day and we realise how painful this last 18 months has been. It's about, I think, us being able to offer advice where we can that works. There isn't a fix-all solution. And we, while we really wish there could be, there isn't in that scenario. For us, um, it's been about focusing on the things that we can affect and we can affect quickly. One of those has been things like looking at other things that could come into the mix that not only deliver securer energy so that we're not going outside the UK borders to be reliant on energy sources, but also could deliver cheap electrons and quickly. So things like building onshore wind, which is the cheapest form of energy. It's about that. But then it's also about talking to customers and homes and understanding what's going to work in that individual case. So whether or not that's turning boiler flow rates down, for instance, which can save some customers up to £100 a year, or it's looking at heating individuals versus homes. So for vulnerable customers, providing electric blankets, or it's helping customers look through homes and identify where drafts are and excluding those to even sending a member of our team out into homes to explore and what might work. As I said, not a one size fits all, but it's about listening to customers and it's been about helping to identify where we can help and as quickly as we possibly can. But it's it's a really tough time. It's a really tough time. Yeah, and I think it's great to hear you say that because I think there's nothing worse in this environment than trying to cover up the fact that it's challenging and that there isn't a one that we can just yeah kind of make everything better. But but there are ways to you know to help. And clearly, I know how customer centric Octopus Energy is, and I, I think uh, it's great to hear all the different initiatives that you're doing to try and make this situation a little bit better. Do you have any particular advice for any listeners that may be struggling at the moment with? their energy prices. You mentioned a few there, but are there other, maybe some other kind of fast ways that they can reduce their monthly bills or just initiatives they can take to take the pressure off a little bit? Yeah, quite simply, I think if you're struggling, the best thing to do is to contact your energy provider and talk through what the options are and not be afraid to pick up the phone and have that very real conversation. That is the most effective thing I think anybody can do that's in that situation at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Great advice. Thank you, Sarisa. And and I guess looking forward, we're obviously in the thick of this, but I think there's lots of reason to be positive, you know, as we look forward. 
what what else needs to happen for us to get out the other side of this crisis? And kind of what are you most looking forward to or excited about that that can we can leave a kind of some glimmers of hope for our listeners about the the future? I think what this situation and cost of living crisis has identified is a really big opportunity for the UK to become more independent, not go backwards, but make sure that this energy crisis that we find ourselves in is the very last. So build more renewables, which are cleaner and are cheaper and can provide quickly to UK households some relief on the high prices that we're seeing. We need to electrify society as quickly as you possibly can. And um, when I say electrify society, it's renewables, it's bringing more electric vehicles um, into consumers' homes because they can be a great tool into the future, as I was describing kind of earlier on, in, in dealing with the intermittency that renewables provide. And we should be using gas really now as a second source, a secondary source, and only when we absolutely have to, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And those things, if we focus on them and the opportunity that's been created by this crisis, will bring down prices for customers. And in the future, it will make us much more secure in the way that we source energy. Those are the things that we have to focus on. And we can do those things really rapidly. Building renewables at the moment takes way too long in the UK. It can take up to 10 years when actually we could be doing this in as little as two. I look at what we went through in the pandemic and we led the world in finding vaccines which typically take 15 years to deliver. And look what we did in under two. Just think what the opportunity this represents. For us, if we get things right and we get the right people sat in rooms across the UK that we can do for our energy programme and ultimately begin delivering cheaper energy for customers in their homes. Yeah, great to hear such a positivity. I think we all need a bit of that. And I guess there's a message to everybody listening that we can all play our part to help move this whole movement forward and, uh, you know, hopefully hopefully re- reduce our reliance uh, on outside of the UK and uh, help save the world, which I think is something that is on the agenda of, of a lot of us at the moment. It's been such a pleasure chatting, as we said. Thank you um, so much for sharing a bit more about your career and the amazing work you're doing um, at Octopus Energy. Before we close, though, we always like to wrap up with some final questions. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Octopus Energy? An abundance of clean, cheap electrons for everybody. Love it. And if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? It would be Al Gore. I think uh, he's one of our shareholders here. I've been lucky enough to meet him twice. The way he can storytell and inspire and get people to understand very, very complex issues and get people to follow that is unbelievable absolutely unbelievable so hands down it would be him i love that yeah and i think mentors that are great storytellers you know are are even more impactful so yeah thank you for that and finally what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to pass on to our 40 minute mentor listeners yeah so i'm a person of color so my grandfather emigrated here from the caribbean as part of the windrush generation back in the 40s And throughout his life, he um, obviously saw some very difficult times and a lot of prejudice. And he was the calmest, most rational person I think I've ever met. And I asked him how, how he did that sometimes, even in the face of the biggest adversities. And he said to me, always remember what makes you the same as somebody else. Always remember to spot the commonality. Don't focus on what makes you different. You'll always have something in common with people. And that's really, really important. 
And actually for humanity moving forwards, if you're going to overcome something, you have to remember that you have things in common. And I think not only in my personal life, but also in business, that's been hugely helpful. And it's why when uh, we look at creating things that are going to resonate with audiences, it's not just for a few people. It gives you the ability to kind of spot and scale oppositions as well, because it's that commonality and the ability to resonate across large audiences that's going to make you successful rather than focusing on few. It's a beautiful piece of advice to leave our listeners with. Thank you so much, Zalisa. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I know our audience are going to really enjoy this episode. So thank you for, for sharing your thoughts and mentorship and wishing you and the team all the very best for 2023. Thank you. That's everything from us today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Zoisa North Bond. To learn more about Octopus Energy or to connect with Zoisa directly, make sure you follow the links in the show notes. And if you've been enjoying this series so far, then please don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform or at ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thanks so much for your ongoing support. And I look forward to seeing you again for a fresh dose of pocket-sized mentorship very soon. Mm -hmm.